This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And uh, I'm still trying to uh, find the rest of my voice, but I have what I have today, but uh, some of it is still not with us, so forgive the hoarseness. Um, I'm still dealing with COVID that is not COVID. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, this week we are coming to Mark chapter 4 in our series on the identity of Jesus. We're going to be looking at what Mark is telling us about who Jesus was, um, what can we learn from the Gospel of Mark's description of Jesus. Sam, this chapter is full of parables, mm-hmm. which we've talked about parables just recently, including some of these parables. Um, so I'm thinking that today maybe we can take an approach where you know, we kind of look at each parable to sort of see what it tells us about Jesus. And that can be apart from the meaning of the parable. Mm-hmm. I like that. Let's, let's do it. Yeah, okay. So um, <laughs> we begin with the parable of the sower. Now, we talked about this at length. Um, I happened to look it up. It was episode 142A and B. It was a two-part episode. So episode 142, uh, if you wanted to hear a detailed discussion of the different types of soil. But the parable of the sower is a... Uh, it's a very familiar one. It describes uh, a sower who is who is spreading this seed. Some of it falls on the path, some on rocky ground, which has very shallow soil, some on soil that has thorns in it, and some on soil that's been prepared and it yields a crop uh, of varying amounts of, of bounty. Um, so we've talked about what each soil represents and what the different meaning of it is. But I thought today maybe we talk a little bit about the sower. Um, we know that the seed, Sam, is the is the word of God. Mm-hmm. So the sower, as I was considering it this week, I said to myself, you know, he is, you know, he's he's walking down the path to sow the seed, and he sees the ground. He, he's going to see the ground that's been tilled, and the rocky ground that hasn't been. And yet he's spreading the seed everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I asked myself a question, isn't that a waste of seed? Um, and then, you know, to answer that question, I said, well, maybe the seed has some value, even if it's not going to be a, a plant that comes up and bears much fruit for the harvest. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, so that raises this question, which is, is there a value of the word of God to an unbelieving world, whether they acknowledge its truth or not. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was a brilliant take on when I was going through personal worship and considering that because I'd never really thought, you know, yeah, why is he throwing seed on the path? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. this is guaranteed wasted seed, it seems like. 
And so you're like what the Lord is essentially saying to us is, you know, you don't go and say, well, I know it's going to grow here, so I'm going to place this seed here, but I'm going to ignore the rocky soil and everything else. God is saying, put it everywhere. You're casting seed all over the place. And I remember when I first came to faith, you know, I was really zealous. Like I was the guy that you didn't want to be around because Sam's <laughs> going to start talking around about the Bible again. <laughs> Yeah, but, and, I, I know a good verse about that. Yeah, let me quote it for you. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, no, get it, get it away from him. Wh- whose turn is it to sit next to Sam? <laughs> um, but anyway, like in my mind, I had it mapped out. Like I knew which friends I thought were, you know, this guy's really moral. He, he loves his family. He treats people really well. He's going to come next. I know it. And then I would look at, you know, my friend who is, you know, really a train wreck who gets in bar fights and who's – you know, there's not a drug that he won't try um, and do and enjoy repeatedly. And I would think, man, he's never coming. And one of the things that God has done that has been tremendously surprising and humbling is the person I thought was going to come next, you know, who was the moralist, yeah. has been the hardest nut to crack. Hmm. He he seemed like he was the most fertile soil, and yet it nothing gets through. Because he feels like he's got everything together, while the person that looks like you know rocky soil and there's thorn bushes everywhere, you know that's those are the ones that have come to the Lord that are now on fire, and it's it's been really surprising that in my mind the ones that seemed so close, you know that that actually you know say you know yeah of course I believe in God, um, and they have the good behavior. Those have been the hardest ones to see surrendering and humbling themselves before God and admitting that they need salvation while the people who've, you know, driven their life into a ditch (laughs) because the soil is so messy, um, those have been the ones where, man, they're producing an incredible harvest in their life. They're growing. The seed is, is flourishing and blossoming, and it's been surprising. And so it's like, you know, we don't know when we are casting seed. We may think we do. We may have hunches on who's going to be next. But you never know, and that's that. I thought that was really, really uh, profound. You know that you brought out in personal worship that the sower casts on all the soils, yeah. and that's not wasted. But beyond that, you know, when you talked about how even even the seed that you cast on the path that might not grow up into an abundant harvest, you know, even if it's just you know flourishes for a moment but fails, even that seed is not wasted because it's beautified things even for a moment even if it's not eternal. Um, and it's what we call common grace, mm-hmm. which I thought was a really brilliant way to take this passage. When you talk about your two friends, you know, as we've studied through many different aspects of the New Testament, we've talked repeatedly about how Jesus was going to the tax collectors and the sinners, and he was avoiding the, uh, the righteous people, the self-righteous people. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, in our humanity... Because I was kind of the same way you were. When I first came to faith, I sort of assumed that good people wanted to be Christians mm-hmm. and bad people didn't. And mm-hmm. yet, when we look at how Jesus comes to people, he goes right for the bad people. Yeah. Well, the reality is you can't become a Christian until you recognize you are the bad people. You are the bad people, <laughs> right. And that's hard for somebody who thinks that, they, that they're pretty much doing everything right. Mm-hmm. It's really hard for them to suddenly come around and say, man, I am desperately in need of a Savior. 
Yeah. Uh, Righteous people don't need a savior, right? I, I, I'm good enough. You know, God's lucky to have me. Look at me. I, I do all the right things. I'm, right. I'm pretty good. You don't need a savior then. I, I think that obviously, you know, we're not going to have much of an impact on people um, if we become like one of those crazy street preachers with the sandwich boards. <laughs> the end is near. You know, and every time somebody comes past them, he starts talking about the lake of fire that shall burn forever. Um, you know, quoting all these verses from Revelation. Mm-hmm. You know, that is a repellent. You know, that's not something oh, yeah. that accomplishes anything useful, in my opinion. Um, I agree. So, you know, when we when I think about how it is that I bring the word of God to the world, it's not necessarily by coming up and you know, opening the conversation by, you know, quoting the word of God. Um, I have a, a habit. My wife's actually picked this up from me. When I'm talking to somebody who, you know, will say to me, how can you be opposed to X, Y, Z? Whatever it is, pick your social justice issue. How is it that you can tell me that marriage should be one man, one woman? How can you do that? And I say to you, my answer is, I say, I'm a person of the book. I believe that this book contains the words of God. This is God's word to me. And I have chosen, note that, chosen of my own free will to follow it. Now, I believe that God freed my will so that I could make that choice, but God did not compel me as some kind of robot to accept his word and to try mm-hmm. to live according to his word. And so I'll say to this person, that's my choice. If somebody is not a person of the book, you know, if you think this is full of myths and fairy tales, well, then this book doesn't apply to you. But I have chosen to allow this book to apply to me. So if I see what the book says, that's what I believe. That's what I follow. And I can't get rid of parts of the book just because they don't line up with kind of how everybody feels anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and so I try to explain things that way. And it's interesting that explanation sometimes goes over better than because I'm not trying to tell them. Uh, and this is usually somebody who is either, you know, in a same sex relationship or, or, you know, very much approves of them and thinks that we're terrible people for not. Um, I'm not trying to tell them that the same, I don't tell them the same sex relationship is wrong. I'm like, it's what the book says. And I follow the book. If you don't want to follow the book, you don't have to, that's not, you know, that's on you, not me, you know, but I've chosen to follow the book. And so I do, you've chosen not to. So you can live your life how you want, you know, free country, that kind of thing. Um, but it still means that there's a universal truth. There is. Just because you don't believe in the book doesn't mean that that relationship is okay. Um, you know, there is, a, there is a universal truth. But we also have to say that it's a universal truth that starts with a recognition that there is a God, that there is this, this creator who has the right to make these – to declare these universal truths. Yeah, but I would say that the universal truth is true regardless of whatever you recognize. You know, if I believe that cannibalism is okay because I reject the book, that doesn't mean cannibalism is okay for me. Yeah. Well, I think that we can agree that anything that involves direct harm to your fellow man 
probably isn't okay um, because of, you know, we, we sort of agreed on some certain laws that say you're not allowed to do things like eat me. Um, that's not that's not a good idea. Although if you could, it would probably last you for a while. Um, so nice, you know. Just mentioning that. Um, I know, and I, I I understand what you're saying. I'm trying to make the the point with these people that you know that I'm going to follow what the book says, even if it's not a popular thing to do. Um, I don't know that that is uh, the right way to handle those conversations. Um, but it's the way that I've kind of, you know, gotten, you know, sort of fallen back to by saying, this is why I do it, you know, mm-hmm. because of what the book says. If you want to talk about what the book says, now we're having a Bible study. Is that what you want? No. All right. Then, okay. Then, then I'm going <laughs> to follow think, the book and you're not going to follow the book. And I think one of the rubs, and this is where you start getting into common grace. So, you know, Paul talks about how if, if the church is disciplining its members, we don't we don't discipline the unbelieving world because they haven't covenanted under, you know, they haven't they haven't entered into the covenant with Christ, and so we don't discipline them. That Paul talks about that in Corinthians. Yep. But on the flip side of that, when you talk about covenant, like common grace, there are things in the scriptures, deep truths of the ways that the world it works, the way that it's engineered, it affects sexuality, it affects human nature. It speaks to all of that where the society really gets the rub is, okay, how how do we take the truths of the scripture and allow them to apply to things that do impact other people? So in that, it's, you know, when you're talking about marriage laws or, you know, right now the big hot button issue is abortion law. Um, you know, when you talk about the way that our system was set up with all the checks and balances and the separation of powers – all of that is in a deep recognition of man's depravity, which comes from this worldview. Um, you know, in the Federalist Papers, they talked about, you know, if, if men were angels, governments wouldn't be necessary. But men are fallen, and therefore you need governments because <laughs> we're depraved. Yeah. Um, and so the, the truths of the scriptures do play out in how you you steer public policy, and that's where that's where the rub comes. Because from a personal basis, you know, I can be friends with my neighbor regardless of what they're engaged in. If they're, you know, drug addicts, if they're, you know, in a same-sex relationship, like I'm going to love them every bit as much as I would a neighbor who's not. I'm not going to change the way I would treat them based on that. Right. But in terms of, you know, what I believe is right and wrong, what I think should be public policy um, – for the best interest of the nation, for the peace and purity of the nation beyond the church, you know, that's where it gets a little trickier, you know, the argument of whether you can legislate morality. Well, all legislation is somebody's morality. True. And that's where it gets <laughs> – that's where it gets a little hairy. Right now, pretty much all of our legislation is based on secular, you know, a- atheistic frameworks. Right. Um, and I'm not a fan of that either. Yeah. I think it's way, 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 way more harmful. You know, when you look back at the at the world into which the you know Hebrew scriptures were introduced so many thousands of years ago, um, that world we would look at what went on back then as being absolutely barbaric. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was it was a a level of disregard for the value of human life on an epic scale, far mm-hmm. far 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 worse than anything that happens today. 
And so here comes the Bible. You know, God mm-hmm. gives his people the scriptures, the law. And, you know, Israel, let's be honest, Israel was not, not so good most of the time at following the law. Mm-hmm. If they had been, they would have really been this, you know, incredibly unique people. And they're, and at times they were. Um, but when for you, short, short seasons. For short seasons, yes. <laughs> you know, but when you look at how the law, you know, told people to live, it was so diametrically opposed to mm-hmm. everything that everybody else thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and over time, as the Christian faith became sort of the dominant Western religion, it then sort of underwrote a lot of our laws and how we did, you know, the, the, the Ten Commandments became a foundational element of our laws. Mm-hmm. Why can't I commit murder? Well, because the Bible says it's wrong. Um, you know, yeah, well, why is, man, mm-hmm. why is man more valuable than the animal? Well, because he's created in the image of God. You right. take away the scriptures and you have no basis for saying that man is more valuable than a primate right. or a dog or a cat. Which, interestingly enough, if you talk to the right person, they will happily agree with that. I, t- I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I saw where one of the UN courts had just declared that primates should have human rights. It was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, some some nation just declared that squids were sentient. Oh, good grief! Yeah, squids are sentient beings. I'm like, <laughs> what does that mean exactly? Does that they have mean a very that, low bar for sentient? Does that mean that we have an obligation to educate them? <laughs> provide them with health care? Well, what does that mean, that they're sentient beings? I, I don't know. I haven't looked into that too far. But the UK government has officially included decapod crustaceans, including crabs, lobsters, crayfish, and cephalod mollusks, including octopus, squid, and cuttlefish, in its animal welfare sentience bill. This means they are now recognized as sentient beings in the UK. So how much longer before we have to consider the squid vote? <laughs> You know, um, I don't mean to be flippant or whatever. I'm sure that they have their reasons for what they're doing, that they're trying to protect endangered creatures. Um, But it is kind of funny, (laughs) I think, anyway. Um, Hmm. So, you know, just when you think that that, that humanity can't get any weirder, you know, just, just, just wait. Something will pop up on your news feed tomorrow. Um, and that's one of the things that's scary, like yeah, because it, I don't think anybody would deny that slowly we are shedding um, many of the foundational core values that come out of our Judeo-Christian heritage, and we're reverting in right. a lot of ways to what the ancient world looked like. Because you know, even when you read Nietzsche, who's you know read in almost every college, if you take philosophy, he's up there as one of the greats. You know, mm-hmm. but even Nietzsche would come out and tell you that. We borrow, if you have an atheistic framework, that ethics like humility and mercy are just borrowed from Christianity and they need to be shed. Power is the great virtue. And so seize it. It doesn't matter to help those that are less fortunate. You're doing them a disservice and you're being weak. And so like when when you start abandoning the idea that every single human being has value, well, where do you get that from? Prove that scientifically. Why are you more valuable than a dog? You know, the only thing that you can appeal to that places you higher than animals or squid is the fact that the Word of God says you're created in His image. You're right. set apart. You're of elevated value. 
Um, and it doesn't mean that you can mistreat animals because they're not. Yeah. They're his creation too. So everything becomes precious, but humanity is exalted and set apart. If you lose that and humanity is just another animal, you know, a, a biological you know, accident, are we surprised that our view of humanity and one another and how we treat one another has become so absolutely toxic in the last several decades as we have walked away from God? Right. You know, the loss of common grace. This is the seed you're talking about. You know, we, it used to be that we scattered the seed all over our culture, and even people who did not embrace Christianity for salvation understood the beauty of, of its ethics. Now, our society has not been scattered with seed. Our society more and more rejects the system of ethics that's championed in the Bible, and we're becoming a society that looks nothing like what we have in the past. Um, We're becoming much more pre-Christian, and if you understand what that world looks like, it's not an exciting future if we revert to that. And I also think that if you are somebody who you know, you decide that you are a person of the book and you're going to follow the book. You're going to do things that are going to make you a little unusual mm-hmm. in this world. Things like being kind to someone, um, look, you know, caring about them, helping them, um, or, or just being generally decent to people, trying to help them better their situation. Um, if that's the, because that's what the Bible tells us to do is to take care mm-hmm. of people that need help when your neighbor is in need that's how that's how you determine your neighbor you thought you see the need you help them yeah it's what our god has done for us you know yeah exactly and that's a very unusual behavior you know we in this country we've got two big political tribes we got the lefties and the righties and they're all willing to protest something at the drop of a hat um, and I don't even want to argue about what they're protesting. Maybe it's fine that they're protesting, that though they should be outraged about what they're protesting over. However, in their energy ends at the protest. They don't then go out into these neighborhoods that are the subject of their protest. You know, you, you are leaving these people behind. Okay, great. What are you doing to improve their situation? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Oh, you're protesting. You're, you're, setting things on fire downtown. How is that helping their situation? Why aren't you out among these communities every single day trying to help them deal with their difficult situations so that they can live better lives? Because you know who's doing that? The church. How many ministries do we know that we support, that we're involved with right in Fort Lauderdale, who spend all of their resources trying to help people deal with difficulties mm-hmm. in life, whether that's mental health, whether that's poverty, whether that's food, whether that's housing. It's like I can start listing ministries. Um, and do, do, we, do we have a lot of the, of the protesters coming alongside saying, how can we help? I don't see them. <laughs> I don't know of any. Yeah, I don't. Uh, and that's true. And you look at the numbers, and the church gets beat up a lot. But if you look at numbers of what the church does – the amount of you know if you if you break down and kind of do pie charts of of who offers the most rehabilitative care for addicts, the church is far and away you know ahead. I mean, government obviously is a big part, but it's churches who adopts more children than than anyone else. It's the churches. I mean, you go through who takes care of the poor, those that can't feed themselves, food banks, all that. 
like you find it's communities of faith that do that. Yeah. Um, and we need more of that. But everybody has put on their outrage hat. Nobody believes anybody else. That We've lost all credibility. I heard somebody say, you know, we're, we've become a people who see through everything, you know, no, we don't. We don't take anything at face value. We don't take anybody's word for anything because we can't trust anybody anymore. And so he says, "You see through everything." And the problem when you see through everything is that you see nothing. Yeah, everything becomes invisible if you see through everything. And so you can't hold on to any truth. And if you can't hold on to any truth, then everything becomes just a shouting match. Right. Um, there's a great quote. I'm going to read it. Maybe this will get cut out. But it's one of my very – it's brilliant. It was written by a guy named G.K. Chesterton in the 20th century. But he's talking about how philosophy is shifting and nobody really believes anything anymore. Everything is a relative truth. And he says – long quote, but it's brilliant. He says, the new rebel is a skeptic and he will not tr- entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty. Therefore, he can never be really a revolutionist. And the fact that he doubts everything – really gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind, and the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. And then he gives all these examples, which I love. He says, as a politician, he will cry out that war is a waste of life, and then as a philosopher, that all life is a waste of time. As a Russian pessimist, he'll denounce a Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. The man of this school goes first to a political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they're beasts, and then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist being an infinite skeptic is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, love this conclusion, therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything." And I love that quote. And that's the state of where we are as a country. Okay. Uh, if I leave the sentient squids in, I'm certainly going to leave that in. Uh, <laughs> okay, so we've got an issue here. Uh, what we have is a world that increasingly doesn't have any interest in the seed, doesn't have any interest in, in the word. Like you say, it's, it's, it, you know, they're re, they're, it's all secular philosophy that's driving things. So then how do we, as the sowers of the seed, how do we take the word again to the world? What's the what's the way in which we can, you know, introduce them again to the word? Uh, short of taking the word up as a club and trying to beat people over the head with it, mm-hmm. how do we begin to reintroduce it to the world? Do you think? Uh, you know, I think it's through kindness and humility. Um, the reality is, you know, and this is where we started with this conversation with what you were saying, you know, that you don't meet people to beat them over the head. You know, you live a certain way because you abide by the book. And if they live a different way, it doesn't mean you're going to cut off relationship with them. You're still going to be neighborly and right. kind. And one of the things that you find in the Gospels, and that it took me a while to notice this because I used to be the guy that, you know, had the Bible as a hammer ready to go. It never works, by the way. 
it certainly doesn't draw them to you. One of the things that you find in Jesus is every time Jesus comes across someone scandalous, he never leads with the law. So he, he doesn't go to the woman at the well and be like, you got five husbands. You know, you've had five husbands. Man, you know, you're an adulteress. You, sh- you should be ashamed. You really need to clean up your life. John 8, he doesn't go to the woman caught in adultery and be like, yep, she is a mess. Look at her. You know, like he never starts with a harsh word. He never starts with judgment. Every, t- every time you see Jesus come across a person who's in the middle of a mess, even if it's you know, a mess of their own making, especially if it's a mess of their yeah, own making. Yeah, I was going to say, especially so. Yeah. He always starts by showing them tremendous dignity. He, he is willing to identify with them to where he draws the ire of the crowd for their sake. He gets in front of them. He shows them kindness. He protects them. And at that moment when he has shown them such grace and mercy and kindness to where they look at him and go, oh, he loves me. He cares. He really does care for me. It's then that he says, you need to leave this life. You know, go and sin no more. Um, or, he, you know, he points out where their, their life is broken. But he has the credibility to do so because he's shown them that his love is not based on their performance, which is the heart of the gospel. God doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us because he's good. Right. And we respond to that. So when we go to the world, that's the way that we can reach the world. Yeah. They have to believe that we love them regardless of whether or not they comply. Mm. You know, I and won- that's hard. It's very hard. I mean, how many times have we talked about just inc- how incredibly rare true humility is? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it barely exists anymore. Um, you know, except for us. Except for us. You and I. We're very humble. <laughs> there are times when I wonder. I've, I think I've said this before. What's wrong with me? You know, mm-hmm. it's like I I understand that. Humility is the is like the most Christ-like of all virtues. It's the basis of all other virtue. Humility is, and when I find myself behaving in a decidedly not humble way, I am appalled at myself. You know, I'm and and chastise myself over it. I know God forgives me for it. I know I have an opportunity to do better, but I keep making the same mistakes. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's really difficult to get ahead of your flesh in that respect because all of us have this intense desire to consider ourselves, you know, if not better than everybody else, at least as good as everybody else. And what about me? When am I going to get mine? Um, and the selfishness that's in my flesh is astonishing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what? Kindness, kindness can be contagious, and and That's putting true. yourself putting yourself last, you know, showing other people that you're willing to serve, like they notice it, they marvel at it, and when they, you know, somebody who's walking through grief, you know, just to be kind to them, to bring them a meal, like it makes such a tremendous impression that it makes them more likely and more desirous to do that for others because it meant so much to them. Um, right. And I think we need to be a lot more generous with our time and our our compassion to be kind to others because that can be – you know, you talk about common grace. They, they may not come to Jesus, but they will love what flows from Jesus. Yeah, yeah. 
I think that if our goal is to take the word to the world, like you say, it starts with treating people the way that Jesus would treat them, with grace, with kindness, uh, humbly, and uh, you know, and then you sort of you sort of earn that status where you have the opportunity then to in, to mm-hmm. introduce the word. Yeah, and it doesn't mean. And one of the things that this culture is terrible at is we surrender truth, thinking that that's love. So I'm I'm not going to denounce anything. I'm not going to have any firm convictions. Everybody, you know, I believe that everybody can do whatever they want, and that's the most loving thing I can do. That's wrong. You know, I, I've used this as an example before. That if you're my friend and I tell you that I'm going to go out and I'm going to cheat on my wife. The most loving thing you could do is tackle me, like tie me up or whatever. But you have, Mark, you have the credibility and the authority to do that because I love you and you love me. And I trust you and you're my friend. But for the person out there who is in one of these lifestyles that, you know, regardless of what it is, sexual, addiction, whatever, crime, you know, I was led to the Lord by a guy who was in a jail cell for attempted murder. So, you know, whoever it is, you know, they have to have the credibility to be able to share that truth by loving them. You don't you don't surrender the truth and say, well, you know what? Okay, for me to love them, I have to say, you know what? I agree with the trans movement. No, that that's not loving either. Right. But you you love them and you let them know that regardless of what they think, that you're you still value them, um, and you're going to love them. They can't lose that. Yeah. That doesn't mean you have to surrender the truth. And that's where it's like on both sides, people tend to fall off one side or the other. Well, if I'm going to hold for truth, then I've got to rub their nose in it and I've got to stand opposed to them and I've got to deny you know, any kind of compassion toward them or recognize their common humanity and suffering or anything like that. And so you get people who go off one side with their prophetic, you know, I got to hold firm to the truth. Well, yeah, you should. But then on the other side, you get people who are like, but we have to love them, and therefore I have to affirm everything they do in their life. No, no, you know, because these people over here value the priestly. And, you know, let's just, we need to care for them. And both sides are right, but you can't forfeit one for the other. Right. But that you lead with the priestly, you lead with love. Right. And when you have credibility, you know, the prophets, the prophets aren't out there. You know, shouting at the unbelievers more often than not, they're talking to their own people saying, get your stuff in order. So it's not until you've won that person with the priestly ministry that the prophetic word has power to move in them. Well, um, if we spend the same amount of time with each parable, this is going to turn into a mini series. So let's move on <laughs> to the second one, which is the lamp under the basket, which is verses 21 through 25. Now, in this one, Jesus says, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. So when I looked at that, I mean, whatever the meaning of the parable is, we could have a, long, we could have a conversation about that. But what it told me about Jesus is what John says about Jesus at the beginning of his gospel, is that Jesus is the light of the world. He came to bring light to the world. Um, we're all in darkness apart from his light. And so I started thinking about what the role of light was. Um, that light 
illuminates everything and forces us to see reality. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we like things to be shadow. You know, we like to be able to put things in the in the in the back corner where the shadows are, where you don't see how messy the boxes are that I've stacked there. Um, <laughs> but that's not uh, that's not really possible with Jesus. You know, he has that he has that kind of light that doesn't seem to have a single location that it comes from. When the mm-hmm. light of Jesus shines on something, it's like the light comes from everywhere, and there are no shadows. There's nothing that is left in the dark. Um, that can make people pretty uncomfortable. Uh, but I also think that it's necessary uh, if we're going to be able to, you know, to, to deal with any of the things that we have to deal with. Yeah, when we, we, I remember when we were walking through the Sermon on the Mount long time ago on a podcast long, long ago. Uh, we talked about how you know darkness is the absence of light, but darkness by itself isn't anything. You know, it's 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 idle. You know, there's there's no movement, there's no anything. But light actually moves. It's radiant. It it brings heat. It brings warmth. It's it illuminates. It it reveals color and beauty and all these things. And that is, you know, what the Lord has given us. We're called the light of the world. We're to do all those things to bring life and beauty and all of this stuff. And when God, you know, when I was reading your take on. Uh, where you went with the scattering of the seed, that the seed is meant to go to all places. I thought, you know, it would, in some sense, when when the Lord is giving this parable, when you put a basket over a light, it's really bright inside the basket. Yeah. You know, (laughs) like it's, it's super bright in there. Yeah. And I think what that's saying is like, this isn't just meant for you. It's it's not just meant within your borders and your boundaries to be really bright inside the church, but nobody else outside of it knows anything about how bright this is. So open up the walls. Tear down the walls. You're to go out into the world. You're to shed this light that makes things warm and beautiful and bright and true and revealed. Take it to the ends of the earth. You're not allowed to contain it inside your walls. And so just like you scatter seed on the path and on the rocky soil and on the thorns and on the good soil, you take off the basket and let the light shine everywhere. Um, it's, it's tearing down this notion that the church can be exclusive. It cannot – it's not to be contained. It's to go everywhere. Right. And that – you know, reading through your personal worship, that really hit me when I was going through stuff, particularly that – even even this parable as well. It the light is meant for the whole house. It is, and in addition to that, darkness as we have in scripture is always uh, a metaphor for for death, um, mm-hmm. for the grave. First John, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what Jesus has brought to us, and it's what He expects us to bring to the world. Um, John in his in his gospel, John says that we are the light of the world, like he is, but mm-hmm. it's not our light. It's his light that's in us. So and I'm glad for that because if it was my light, it would be a flickering <laughs> flame and a cloudy glass lens. And oh my goodness, <laughs> you know, has this, has this thing burned out yet? Is there any light coming out of this at all? Um, you know, it's, it's reassuring, I guess, to know that it's not dependent on on our light, but what it is true is it's dependent on us taking the light that we've received from him mm-hmm. 
and taking that light to the world. Yeah, I used to use this metaphor when I was teaching, and people would ask, you know, about the the origins of evil. And I would I'd give this analogy. I'd say, you know, imagine you're in a theater and you have a projector that's throwing light on the screen, and you're watching a beautiful movie, you know, and you're really into it. And right at the climactic scene, I stand up in the middle of the theater, and my shadow is now cast on the screen. You're not going to turn around and yell, "Turn off that projector!" You know. The projector is the good thing, but as and as much as I'm an obstruction to the light, I'm the one who casts shadows in this world. And so uh, the way that I then am to be you know, spiritually to become transparent so the light of Christ can shine through me, that I don't take my selfish ambitions and my motivations and I become an obstruction to the light because then I will cast a shadow on what he's intended to be really bright and beautiful. And so, you know, there's – if you're taking the metaphor, you've got to become transparent. Don't don't block the light. Don't cast the shadow, but let his light flow through you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of restating what we said about the last one mm-hmm. uh, in the last parable because if we become transparent and we're letting his light shine through us, well, what exactly does that mean? You know, it means that we're going to be for other people as Jesus would be. You know, in that in that process of, of introducing them to him. You know, darkness is spiritual darkness has one job. I love the you know these remember the uh, mayhem commercials, the yeah, all state yeah. commercials with mayhem? One of my favorite ones is he's playing the blind spot on somebody's car. And so the camera pans in on him and he's hanging on to the side of a moving car and he says, I'm your blind spot. I have one job. Hide big things. (laughs) So, you know, I think about that. It's like spiritual darkness has one job, to hide the truth from people. Mm -hmm. That's what it's it's destined to do. That's what what the enemy wants it to do. Um, And so our job is to bring the light that's going to dispel that that darkness. Um, But that's something that we can't do if we're – if it's if we're getting in the way, like you say, if we're if we're mm-hmm. casting that shadow on the screen, yeah, the language that the Bible uses in addition to light, it's it's you have to crucify yourself. You've got to you've got to crucify all of your desires, all the sinful desires that you have. Why Paul talks about this in Galatians two, so that he can live in you. Yeah. In other words, he's shining through you. And what's going to be left? It's going to be you're going to be talking about grace and kindness mm-hmm. with humility. You know, it's kind of the there same, again. it's the same answer, you know, parable number one, you know, parable number two. Well, Jesus is pretty consistent here. Take the word to the world, take my light to the world. How do you do that? You do it the way I would do it, with grace and kindness and humility, while you, you know, while continuing to stand for what is true, but you lead with the grace and the kindness and the humility. Mm-hmm. So then after that, we have the parable of the seed growing. And I thought this was an interesting one to me because as I looked at it, I thought, you, you know, the, says the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. <laughs> well, this idea that, that where the growth is coming from um, is somehow a mystery, mm-hmm. you know, to the person that sows the seed. And I thought about um, Paul says, hey, you know what? I planted and Apollos watered, 
but Christ is the, it gets the increased. Mm-hmm. It's like we are, you know, it is God who builds the church. It is God who brings life. It's it's God who brings growth. Um, and and it it is mysterious to us because mm-hmm. we can't bring it. You know, we can't do it. <laughs> The part that I love about this is he's he's calling you back to humility because y- you can be the one out there scattering the seed, right? But if I, if, you know, what what makes this seed grow and this one not, and what's going on in the soil and how does all this happen? I mean, it's like the earth is hardwired to bring forth life, and the farmer just looks at it and goes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and and so like. What this is saying is the one who's casting seed can't look and go, yep, look what I'm doing. This yeah. life belongs to me. I'm responsible. I'm the one making things grow. It requ- Like Jesus is saying, no, you, you go to bed and you rise every day and you have no idea how this is growing, but it's the earth, not you, that's producing this. Right. It's, it's, God's, it's God's design that's bringing forth the harvest. It's not you. And so, one – that that kind of relieves you from you know you're casting seed. You're not responsible for for life to emerge. That's the spirit's job. That's that's the role of the Lord. But likewise, you can't sit there and take credit when life does emerge and go. Yep, I'm responsible for that one. He became a Christian because I'm such a good preacher mm-hmm. or whatever. Like it's not yours. You can't claim it. You didn't bring it about. You know, it's pretty common in the church today, um, and I'm not going to point fingers at any particular, you know, mega church or, or movement or whatever, but I think it's common in the church today to believe that what you need to do is design the right programs and campaigns that you slickly package and deliver with high quality to appeal to a demographic and that that's what's going to win them to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you and I are both kind of old school. You know, we're, we're like, you know what? You just you just teach the word, mm-hmm. introduce them to Jesus, and it's going to be fine. Um, I think that there's something that's been lost because Christians and with good and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say with good intention. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody starts a mega church going, "I'm going to help the devil by leading people to Jesus." Um, <laughs> I don't think that's why they started. But but when their when their attitude is that. The way that we're going to win the lost, the way that we're going to get people to Jesus is through our excellence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by the way, that doesn't mean that you can have, you know, rancid coffee after the service. I'm not saying that, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not saying that, you know, when you look at how God commanded Israel to worship, all of the things that he told them to do, it's mm-hmm. clear that God expects excellence from his people. Mm-hmm. Do the best you can with the best that you have. So that part of it's 100% true, but that's not going to be what influences people, what brings people into the Lord. Um, it's going to be him. Like you say, it's going to be his spirit. So where is Jesus in the midst of all your slick packaging and dynamic programming and excellent delivery? You know, where is Jesus in there? Mm-hmm. You know, this may need to get cut. <laughs> but I, I – so coming as – when I was in seminary, I was teaching high school students at a, at a Christian school. And one of the things that I would notice is that these students would catch fire when they would go on mission trips. They would catch fire when they would go to some kind of Christian retreat and then they would come back. And in the mundane, they could never sustain 
their faith. You know, it, it would wither away. It was like, you know, the seed cast on the shallow soil. And one of the things that I think is a danger when when we have churches like this that throw so many gimmicks and so much candy at people when they come to church, it's like, you know, let's make let, – we need to make it exciting for you and we need to tickle all of your senses and we need to overwhelm you with all these things and you get this kind of sugar rush of experience when you're in church. But then you go out into your ordinary mundane life and you can't manufacture the same faith when you're in your everyday ordinary life. And, you know, the, and, and like you're saying, if we don't teach people – to have a relationship with God as if you were – even if you were on a deserted island with nothing but a Bible and your ability to pray, like if you can't sustain that apart from all of the experiences that tickle all of your senses, then we're doing a disservice to the people of God. And I, you know, we see that with the younger generation where you know it's, it's all about entertainment value and it's all about what we can throw. And it's really tricky because at one point you do want to bring – the word to life. You want to. You want to. You want to engage all the senses, and you want to do all that. But you don't want to make somebody who's absolutely um, dependent on all of those things being tickled before they can have an emotional response to the Lord. Yeah. You know, and when you come into some of these services that are these high energy churches where everybody around you seems to be absolutely bursting with joy. Mm-hmm. And they're they're singing all these songs at the top of their lungs, and and then the the pastor comes out and he starts talking to them about how to be you know how to live their best life and and how to love truly and deeply and how to you know all these things that that and the, and the crowd is 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 reacting and applauding and cheering you know and he's telling them to give Jesus a you know give Jesus a hand give Jesus. And and everybody's getting whipped up. When you're around that sort of behavior, you you get engaged with that. People get engaged sure. with that. They get caught up in it, and they feel like I've just had an experience that that brought me closer to God. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, if I don't engage in that behavior anymore, I'm not going to get. I ha- that's the only way I can get close to God. And and I'll tell you this. This might surprise you. After everything that we've just talked about, I love those things. I love going to worship nights. I love sure. going to conferences and seminars and retreats and stuff I do like that. I love when there's high energy. I love watching people give their all in worship. But I guess what I'm saying is if you're going to present that as the picture of worship, you need to be very diligent to come alongside your people and show them how to do everyday kind of worship. You know, the, in the mundane, how do you draw near to the Lord when there's no speakers and bass and LED walls and all the other stuff that goes into to a worship service. Like, how do you do it every day? How do you, and right. so, like, when we do our personal worship, what you write, like, you know, it's important to train people. How do you do this when you don't have all the external factors to to ramp up your emotions? Because if you can't sustain that, then you're just getting sugar rush Christianity. And the kids, especially who grow up with nothing but sugar rush Christianity get to their college years when they don't find it anymore and they go, I don't know how to do this, and they walk away. They don't see any value in it. Yep. I remember several years ago, we went to the Gospel Coalition Conference when it came down to Orlando. And we were in for one of the meetings, and they were singing some hymns before the meeting, singing some Mm -hmm. praise songs and hymns. Shane and Shane, I remember that. And there were probably 6,000 people at the conference, and it was mostly men. Um, And 
let, here's the thing about men. Men tend to not sing in church. <laughs> you know, not me. If I've got my voice, I'll sing. And I know a lot of, you know, our staff and a lot of our regulars were like, we sing out. But it's not, that's just not a super common thing. It's more common for the men to kind of stand around and, <laughs> you know, while the women sing. But in this case, you had about 6,000 guys singing in full throat. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling the hair stand up on my arms and the back of my neck. Mm-hmm. And all I thought was, that's what it's going to be like around the throne. Everybody standing, men and women, everybody standing, singing full throat, singing praises to God. And I thought, that's going to be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, I, Those are powerful. Those are powerful and, moments. It stuck with me all these years. And, and the Lord is not opposed to those big moments, you know. Like I, I think they are life-giving, you know, when, when God ordained that – all of Israel would come together for great feasts, you yep. know, three times a year. I mean, yep. those kinds of pinnacle moments of worship, the Lord loves them, but he wants you to also engage in your everyday life for the rest of the year, right. you know, so you need both. Right. So then after the parable of the seed growing, we have the parable of the mustard seed. And this is one where Jesus comes out and says, with what can, can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And I thought about that where, you know, I was like, well, what does that tell me about Jesus? And for me, what I saw it telling me is that Jesus can take even the smallest thing, and make it great. Mm-hmm. He's the he's the magnifier. He's the one that can come out and take, you know, our efforts. And if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me I couldn't, I can't do that. I could not do something like that. Um, you know, I'm not as good at that as as you are, or I'm not as good at that as as they are. Um, I'm like, but it's not going to be you mm-hmm. that determines the outcome of it. It's going to be Jesus. It's going to be he's going to be the one that takes what you do. He takes the, the faithfulness with little and makes it into much. Mm-hmm. And again, here you see this common thread that's always in the teaching of Jesus. It's a call to humility. You know, it's it's the grains of mustard seed that he uses. These these tiny little things that then become wonderful, great things that provide shade to everything else, right. you know? Right. And by the way, they don't exist for themselves. Notice what he points out is that, okay, you start with this humble, really tiny mustard seed, which was the smallest of the seeds of that region, and when it grows up, what does it do? It doesn't just become large for its own sake. It puts out large branches so that it can care for the birds of the air, and they can make nests in its shade, and it produces fruit for people to use, and it, it gives. It, it gives life. It provides shelter. Um, so it doesn't exist for itself either. So it starts out of humility, and when it's blessed, when it grows, when it comes to life, it exists for everything else around it, um, which is kind of the heart of Christianity. You know, you – God takes the humble and he blesses them so that they can be a blessing to everyone around them. Yeah. You know, and I I in personal worship this week I put a note in to say, you know, let's let's talk about outcomes. 
Because generally, when we start talking about Jesus multiplying what's little and making it big, um, we look at that as being that every activity we undertake faithfully in the name of the Lord is going to have a successful outcome. But you and I know that's not true. We've seen we've seen things fail that we've put our efforts put our best into, and yet the Lord, for whatever reason, has not. You know, there's just not been the success with that one mm-hmm. thing. But I think that that's the reason why you know Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God here. He's mm-hmm. not talking about you know Sam's you know class or Mark's podcast or Bible study. He's not you know he, he, what he's saying is that he takes all of these things together and and he's building that kingdom and you know we have to recognize when we undertake something that god is still sovereign over the outcome even if the outcome is bad even if we feel like wow that failed that mm-hmm. was really terrible but we have to have faith and trust that whatever you know that if we understood god correctly and we faithfully moved that whatever he meant for that to accomplish, maybe it was just to influence one person. And that one person was going to go on and influence just one other person who then would influence thousands. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to recognize that God is in control of the outcomes, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. Which leads us to our next story. Yes. <laughs> because in this story you see – Really difficult circumstances followed by stunning power yeah. and good outcomes. Yes. So we're finished with the parables and we come to verse 35 where it says that the story of Jesus calming the storm. Uh, verse 35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? (laughs) And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? We've talked about the story of Jonah a lot. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of parallels uh, you know, between these two. Uh, other, I mean, Jonah was running away from what the Lord told him to do. Don't, you know? mm-hmm. So the reason that they were out in boats is different. But in both cases, it is God who's, who calmed the storm. Jonah said, throw me in. <laughs> so he yeah. sacrificed himself, and God calmed the storm. In this case, Jesus didn't need to to you know throw himself into the water. He was Jonah's God. He was mm-hmm. the God who can command the storm to be still. There's so much that's really powerful in this particular story. Like you know, at the beginning it says when evening had come, so it's dark. So there, you're in darkness, which again, there's that theme again. Things are bad. They're on the water which throughout Scripture is the emblem of death. And you mentioned Jonah. Jesus talks about his own death in similar terms as Jonah being thrown into the sea and being in the sea for three days. Right. Um, and he says, that, you know, like that, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for, for three days before my resurrection. And so the, similarly, he's on the boat and, 
And this is what's crazy about this. It says he's sleeping in the stern, which is really, really hard to believe because it says that water is pouring over the side of the boat, right? <laughs> and and in Matthew 8, it says a great windstorm in Mark chapter 4. But when you read Matthew's version of this, the Greek words behind the storm is seismos. We well, can probably guess what that is, right? Earthquake, seismos, right? Yeah. earthquake. And megas, a great earthquake is usually how that's translated. But in some sense, it means a great shaking um, it's only that that those two words together is always in apocalyptic literature where things are <laughs> going really bad. Mm. Um, and here you have Jesus, and I want you to imagine water's coming over the side of the boat. We're not we're not talking about a cruise ship. You know, it's a first century fishing boat. He's getting wet. The boat is shaking. We find out in Matthew eight. It's being you know seismos megas. It's shaking around. And Jesus is sleeping, and you read that, and you're supposed to go, how in the world is that possible? Like, if I find somebody sleeping, there's two typical ways. Like, the easiest way to wake somebody up, one is to shake them. Hey, are you awake? Wake up, you know. And the other one that will really get you awake in a hurry is if someone throws water on you. (laughs) You know, somebody's passed out or whatever. You throw water on them, and they're going (gasps) to, you know, they wake up in a panic. And in the middle of those two kind of pictures, water's coming on board to where they're worried that the boat's sinking and it's shaking like crazy, and Jesus is still snoring. You know, he's still snoozing, which is crazy. It's, it's supernatural. And then you go back to the days of Jonah, which is written, you know, 800 years or so before this, and Jonah's in the belly of a, a ship. And the storm is raging against this ship because of Jonah's disobedience. And the sailors, who don't believe in God, come down and they're like, wake up, call on your God, call on your God to save us. And they find out that Jonah had been disobedient to the God, and Jonah's like, the only way the storm's going to stop is if you deal with me, throw me in the water. Notice he's like, he doesn't even want to go back. He's not saying, oh, we need to turn around so I can go to Nineveh. He's like, I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. Yeah. But they throw him overboard. And immediately the storm goes calm. And like you're saying, that's God who did it. And what happens is you have all of these guys who are on the boat who are all pagan, and they see Jonah go in the water, and in an instant, the sea goes calm, and the storm stops. And they're left going, oh, my goodness, and what do they do? These pagans worship God when they see that. Mm-hmm. And in this story, you have Jesus who's in the in similar situation, right? The boat is sinking. They're all freaking out. But they're acting a lot like the pagans of Jonah's day, you mm-hmm. know? And so what does Jesus do? He's like, what, what are you so afraid of? Where's your faith? Do, do you not have any faith? Like he's just spoken by the power of his word and said, hush, be still to the storm. And everything in an instant goes calm. The storm stops. The wind stops. The water goes flat. And they're like, they ask the question that Mark has been trying to establish for four chapters, which is, who then is this? That even the wind and the waves of the sea, even the waves and the wind and the sea obey him. And that's the question. And there's only one answer. And what I love about this is when the storm is raging, it says that they were afraid, right? Right. I mean, they're they're freaking out. But when Jesus says to the storm, stop. Hush, and it goes quiet. It says that they were filled with great fear. So they're more afraid when the storm stops (laughs) than they were when the storm was raging is the idea. Why? Because they're looking at the guy who is sovereign over the storm. Mm -hmm. 
and he's in the boat with them. And they're really freaked out because it's finally really starting to hit home who's in this boat with them. And you go all the way back to Mark chapter 1, you know, at the baptism, God's like, this is my beloved son. You've got the Pharisees who are wondering where he gets this power, and they're, they're attributing, you know, he gets this power from Satan. You know, he's, he's from Beelzebub. You get all these people who are wondering who he is. And at this moment, Jesus shows he's not just sovereign over health. He can't, he, you know, it's not just that he has mastery over casting out demons and he can heal lepers and the Lord booms from heaven calling him his beloved son and he's done all of these miraculous things. But now they see he is sovereign over the cosmos itself. He can command wind and waves and seas. And they're like, who is this? That's the question that this whole series is about. That even the wind and the waves obey him, and they know the answer. There's only one person who does that. There's only one force being who can do that, and it's God himself. And so now they're freaked out. But here's, here's something else that's really powerful. When we read the story, we tend to look at it like you know God finally got involved and brought the calm. But before that, he was out of control. When the storm was raging, when the wind was blowing, when the waves are coming over the side of the boat and they're thinking, oh my goodness, we could die, we could die, our circumstances, our circumstances, was Je- do you think Jesus was any less sovereign over no. the wind and the no. waves when they were raging? Nope. No. And so then that, that begs the question, this is a comfort to me, it really is, when things don't go your way, like you were saying, you know, God is sovereign over the bad things and the good things. Yep. He said, let's go across to the other side. So they, in obedience, get in the boat. And God, who, is, who can say to the wind and the waves, stop, you presume, said to the wind and the waves, give us hell. Yeah. And the wind rages. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God lead his disciples to be in the boat going, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen? Wake up, Jesus. Don't you care? Don't you care? which is what we do when our circumstances go wrong, and he awakes and rebukes the wind and the sea, and it all goes calm. Just so he can say, you know, why are you so afraid? Don't you have faith? And they're forced to wrestle with the question, who's in the boat with us? Who is this? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times God puts us in the midst of these kinds of circumstances where we're forced to cry out, for him to deliver us to, or to walk with us through it, to, to deliver us through it so that we go, who is this? Who is this that's in this life with us? Who is this that I'm praying to? Who is this that promises to walk alongside us? And it's, we're training ourselves through these circumstances and hardships to recognize that just as they look at him in the boat and go, oh, my goodness, it's the Lord God himself that's walking with me and in this boat with me. And he's sovereign over the good sea that's calm, and he's sovereign over the storm, and he's with me no less in the storm. You know, I think God brings us into those moments so that we're forced to ask that same question. Who is it? Who is this? You know, that, that all circumstances of life, the storm, cancer, everything – Ultimately, he has sovereignty over. And to some, that's going to bring great comfort. And to others, you think, why in the world doesn't he just always give calm seas? And the answer is, you know, they wouldn't have cried out to him in calm seas. They wouldn't have found his power in calm seas. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have recognized his protective nature in the calm seas. And, you know, 
I think a lot of times if we don't understand God's nature in the midst of our suffering, we miss out on what he's trying to teach us. Mm -hmm. Um, But I love the fact that he is sovereign over the storm and the calm. You know, I I wonder, and let me ask you this, uh, maybe sort of a concluding thought. Um, I've I've wondered whether there's almost a little too much casual familiarity that longtime Christians, in particular, develop toward toward Jesus, in particular. You know, um, we talk about Jesus in in language that he talks about himself. Mm-hmm. We, you know, he calls us. You know his bride. He calls us his friend. He, you know, he he says, you know, he describes how close and intimate the relationship that he has with us. That it's almost as if over time Christians can kind of lose sight a little bit of the fact that he is the Almighty, Infinite God who speaks worlds into existence. Mm-hmm. You know, and we we look at God the Father as being. God, oh, the creator of the universe. But it was through the word. Mm-hmm. You know, God said. So it was through through the sun, through the word, that the actual that creation took place. You know, the, the power and the and the majesty and the authority of Jesus. I wonder sometimes if there's not a little too much um, casual familiarity. Do you feel that that's the case or you think I'm mm-hmm. misperceiving things? Yeah, I think there's a casual familiarity and there's also this sense that, you know, if God doesn't rescue me from a circumstance that he's that he's somehow failed me, right. you know. That God so, is so there to he's there to do stuff he, for you. Yeah, he's there to do stuff for me. And so if I'm in the middle of a storm, God, I want you to make the wind stop. I want you to make the seas calm. And you know what? He can do that. And and he's done that for me countless times in my life. But there are some storms that you know what, like, you know, my mom's at stage four cancer, I've mentioned that. She was given a month to live eight months ago, but it seems like she's taken a turn for the worse lately, and, and I don't know when she's going to go, but I don't get, I don't have the expectation that she's going to be delivered. She's getting up in years. Eventually, she's going to die. That's going to be a storm that, at, at least in my experience of losing her, you know, I don't expect God is going to deliver me from. Mm-hmm. Um, what that grief is going to look like. But this is this is one of the things that I love about the story is it so patterns right after the story of Jonah, except like you said, he's not thrown overboard because he is God and he commands the wind and the waves to stop. But the reality is, you know, the, the disciples are looking at him like make the make the wind stop and make the waves stop because we're about to die. Like we, we're freaking out because we're about to die and God's like, okay, I can do that. And so he awokes and he stops the wind and the sea. But but what he's on a mission to do is to be the ultimate Jonah because, it, you know, he said he compares his crucifixion and resurrection to the, the sign of Jonah. Well, what does that mean? It means that later in his ministry, as you get to the end of the Gospel of Mark, you're going to find him going to a cross. And it's like, you know, the entire boat of humanity. And, and spiritually speaking, he's like, you have to throw me overboard. Even though I'm the innocent one, I'm the prophet. You know, Jonah's a prophet that acted with disobedience. I'm God in the flesh. I've come and acted in perfect disobedience, and yet you're going to throw me into the waters, into the deep abyss, and I'm going to be the one who goes down and suffers. And like Jonah, for three days it's going to look like defeat, but on the third day I am going to rise 
with the power over sin and death. Death has no claim on you. And so now if you're imagining yourself in the boat, we don't just look at Jesus as though he controls the wind and the waves and the circumstances. If the worst circumstance comes to us and it takes our very life, he has conquered death too. And so no matter what you're free, if God doesn't deliver you from your circumstances, he's going to deliver you through your circumstances, even if that means the grave, which he has conquered. And so no matter what, you're standing in the boat with the Lord. And if he doesn't calm the wind and he doesn't calm the waves, this is a God who makes the sea give back its dead. He will raise you. And that is the hope of the Christian that no matter what may come, you are victorious in the Lord. Mm. He is the greater Jonah, mm. the one who's conquered the very worst and experienced the very worst to deliver you from whatever may come. And so when you look at him and you think, man, my circumstances aren't changing, what are you doing? Know that he has already gone to the uttermost depths of hell itself to rescue you. And even if the worst happens, you are victorious and delivered. That's who's in the boat with you. Mm. Mm. Well, that is a good word, probably the best word. <laughs> and mm. it's where we're going to have to end this week. Folks, we hope you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's been profitable for you. If you would like to correspond with Sam and I, you can send an email to outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and on Spotify, as well as in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app. Sam and I will return next week with another podcast on the Gospel of Mark, and hopefully my voice will join us then. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.